This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Exciting Boredom. Lair of the White Worm. John Carpenter's Aliens. And the Occult Battle of Kursk. You've perfected the dosi dough. You've mastered the mashed potato. You know your dance crew is the hottest around, but now it's time to prove it. Breakdancing Meeples is a real-time dexterity game of, you guessed it, Breakdancing Meeples. Designed by Ben Moy and published by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll your Meeple dance crew as fast as you can over and over. Lock in useful rolls and re-roll the rest to complete dance routines and score points. After four one-minute dance rounds, the crew with the most crowd appeal wins the trophy. Breakdancing Meeple comes in a metal tin that's nearly as indestructible as your high school boombox. It plays two to four people ages six and up in five minutes. Find Breakdancing Meeple's at your friendly local game store or at atlas-games.com backslash breakdancing. Because when beats bump, Meeple's gotta dance. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut where... Um... Yeah. Da, da, dum. Peter Frampton. Do, 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 uh, he's do. just not. He's not looking too alive. Well, he's he's going. He's coming through like a Zoom interface. It's not regular Peter Frampton. Uh-huh. Uh, I wish. I wish beloved Patreon backer Rich Ranallo would ask a question. Maybe to kick off an all request episode that'd get us out of our doldrums. Oh yeah, an all request episode. That'd be great. That'd be fantastic. Oh, and, and here, as, as though I have summoned it into being with my words, as though I was some sort of magical genie, Patreon backer Rich Ranallo asks, for some reason, being in self-imposed isolation leads me to wonder, how can a GM use in-character boredom, tedium, or isolation for dramatic tension without making the game boring to players? Robin? Well, sometimes... Uh, games are actually straight up boring. <laughs> yeah, there's, and whether you're using boring boredom or superhero fights, that can happen. So just good luck with that. Yeah, and and that can create tension, uh, especially if there's like one member of the group who really wants to drag out something that the rest of the group finds exceedingly tedious. Yeah, that could, that could be an example of boredom in gaming. Uh, I think the classic example is from the old school style thinking. Well, you have to explore in detail every single room including the many 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 empty rooms that logically would be in any given dungeon yes the, the, there is a row of 150 prison cells all seemingly alike loud sigh from everyone in the party except the thief <laughs> yes um that is a relative of a another phenomenon the arduous journey uh, mm-hmm. in which the uh desire of the author uh, perhaps is his name is begins with J.R.R. Uh, wants you to Could be. feel J.R.R. Yeah, wants you to feel how long and debilitating and difficult uh, a journey was, and so uh, that involves both danger and boredom at the same time over a long uh, period. So the question is, how do you 
use the fact that the characters are bored without boring the players. And uh, here, Ken, as is so often the case, it seems like the montage, montage. is our friend. So what you could do then is say, describe uh, this long period of getting no, you know, it, uh, an investigation game like Gumshoe. It's like you spend uh, three exhausting days canvassing the neighborhood and nobody winds up knowing anything. You've, you've, uh, you've reached a dead end until you're looking at the corkboard and suddenly you see these two clues that you never realized together. And as a seasoned investigator, so I don't know how much time you can actually devote to the experience of being bored except to kind of quickly acknowledge it and, and allied over it. I mean, part of it is to what extent does the mechanics of the game support any sort of effect of boredom? So if you're playing a game and one of the characters is a psychic uh, who's got a perfect mental discipline or they've uh, they're a memorious scholar who's got a palace of memory or something and they would perhaps be immune to being bored because they, uh, they, they're too trained to be bored or they've always, they can always go off and explore the, the palace of their mind and not be bored. You could present a situation in which, you know, when the monsters show up or the, or the bad thing happens, everyone else is at minuses for their alertness role, for their sense trouble, for their surprise role, whatever it is, except the one who was immune to being bored. And if that's a thing that might happen in your game mechanically, then you might even do a little bit of a two or three minute, not a lengthy, but as you say, a montage or a narration, or you, or you could even go around the, the room and ask, as you do in many montage technologies, you say to each player, this, uh, period of sitting in the, in the, in the chalk circle waiting for ghostly manifestations is super boring. There is literally nothing happening. Even the weird creaks and cracks in the house have stopped penetrating to where you're sitting. It's just dead air. You're breathing this hideous, dusty, gray, uninteresting air. What are you doing to keep, you know, to what, what happens to your character in this tedious night watch? And then the players will say, oh, uh, my character is, you know, checking his gun or my character is uh, dreaming about uh, her girlfriend or my character is goes to sleep because my character hilariously always goes to sleep or, or whatever it is. And then you get to the character who is immune to that and you say, but you, of course, Kumar, have your mental palace to explore. What what part of your mental palace do you explore while keeping entirely alert to the surroundings? And then Kamar says whatever it is that they're going to. And then you go to the next uh, player and you've built that little uh, scene. And you can even do that technology as you do with montages without having a player who's immune to boredom because you're at least letting the players answer the question of what do their characters do when they're bored, especially if it's the, you know, fifth lengthy stakeout that they've been on or the fit or, or the hundredth ghost sit or whatever that this is, uh, this is routine to you, even though it's not routine to us, the players and maybe try and, uh, try and get a little role playing out of that, or, or at least let us understand in the fiction, what your character would be doing on a long, you know, on a long ghost sit or on a long stakeout in the car. Are you screwing around with the radio? Are you drinking endless cups of coffee? Are you just uh, whistling tunelessly? Are you going to sleep in the front seat and hoping your partner stays awake? What what kind of person are you when you're bored? Yeah, because those are uh, that gives us a thing that sort of illuminates who you are. As you suggest, uh, the, the main threat of boredom in games is as a uh, dulling effect on your uh, alertness. A famous statement about warfare is that it's um, moments of deadly panic uh, punctuated by days and days of mind-numbing boredom. And 
we often will use ennui or boredom as a motivation for characters to go out and do things, but by definition, they are not bored and refusing to act because they are bored, but rather their boredom is what drives them uh, to act. And so you, again, you might uh, have a scene where at the beginning it's like, describe yourself in the throes of boredom. And now a rock comes through the window and you see something that's a momentary cure for your boredom. Looks like there's a, a document wrapped around the, conveniently around the rock. I suppose you're going to open that. And then Sherlock Holmes, for example, the suggestion is that uh, all of the time that he spends between the short stories is one of uh, excruciating boredom for him. But again, that's between the action. That's in the background. And I'm trying to envision, like, for example, what a, a Yellow King shock card would be that would reflect, you know, a period of uh, boredom. You would uh, make a composure test. And I guess part of it would just be that, uh, you know, boredom sort of dulls your senses. So you might have a minus one to presence tests and then the discard condition is discard by putting yourself in a dangerous situation, uh, which is just a mechanicalized version of the thing I just said. Um, you could uh, have sort of the idea of a false boredom or an artificial boredom be a psychic attack, that there's some effect, some spell that's being cast on uh, people who are, that's causing them to uh, become bored in situations that could be exciting. Uh, traditionally, that's, of course, the action of, a, of an energy vampire or a psychic vampire draining uh, the, the lives out of people. So previously, uh, vivacious Instagram users are suddenly just posting pictures of themselves uh, in their sweatpants looking uh, dull-eyed, and that could be uh, a, a threat. And then, you know, the implication is that at some point, one of the player characters... Uh, succumbs to this boredom effect and you can have them uh, play that out. But that's moving into the territory of uh, we're simulating the effects of clinical depression. And uh, I think, uh, except in a game explicitly uh, designed responsibly around that, it's that's something you probably want to build a fence around and, and not uh, leap over that fence. Yep. Or at the very least, you want to approach it with the same uh, care you do any possible, uh, you know, real trauma or real uh, situation in, in the player's lives. So, you know, there, there are, I'm sure, players that exist that are, that are saying, I, I would like to explore this in a relatively safe, friendly confine of uh, the game as opposed to in the confines of my skull at night. So, like everything else that's a, that's a trauma, talk to your players before you start. Right. And, and it's a tip-off when they pick on Wii as their drive. <laughs> yeah. Um, with the characters who have on Wii as a concept as opposed to as a thing that happens in the game, you barely even have to talk about it because again, we get maybe a, a half paragraph of Sherlock Holmes lounging around the, 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 the apartment whining at Watson or shooting up with cocaine. And then the adventure starts. So you, you, you can sort of take it as read that your character is summoned from his opulent refuge in the worst quarters of Paris uh, when he hears of Violet's problem, merely because he's so bored in his opulent uh, apartment that he, he just wants to sally out into the streets and, and get up to trouble. And you just have that understood as a backstory in the same way that you don't have to refer to, you know, in every episode to, oh, your your, your brother was killed by deep ones. Uh, How is that making you feel today? You know, you don't need to come up with that. Let it occur 
uh, organically in the story. Right. Uh, Rich is also talking about uh, isolation, uh, cabin fever, uh, which, of course, uh, many of us are experiencing. And again, I think that is something that you can indicate at the beginning of the scenario. And also you could, for example, one way to turn that into tension is assuming a, a group of players is, well, uh, you've been in this isolated, icy installation for uh, months now together, and you're beginning to get on each other's nerves. So, Roscoe, uh, why are you uh, annoyed at Denise? And uh, Denise, what is the thing that is uh, uh, really bugging you about Dev? And uh, you could, uh, again, that's something to sort of start the scenario with, and uh, that can be something that you have to somehow work through to, once the danger actually starts, to rebuild your your trust and uh, remind each other why you actually want to all be in this installation together, uh, or at least why you need to forget all those things and band together for uh, mutual protection. But again, this is something that you establish at the beginning and then move away from because uh, it is uh, it is the same dramatic beat over and over again. And from Hamlet's points and, and beating the story, we know that you don't want to continue to hit the same emotional note again and again. Right. Isolation, especially, is the sort of thing you can you can sting when you leave the the Arctic base to to hunt whatever, and you're reminded by the GM. The GM says, "All around you, the frozen plain stretches endlessly. Uh, you can barely tell it from the sky. It's basically like you're inside a a glowing field of bluish white or whitish blue, and there's no way to tell any uh, landmark around you except for the." miserable Quonset hut that you've been stuck in for the last two months. And then, you know, you, you uh, have to go back in and uh, because you didn't find it or whatever happened, but you've had that moment of being reminded, Oh yeah, that's, that's what the real psychological pressure on my character is, is this sense of, of being one flake in a snow globe with, with no connection to the rest of the world. Uh, well, I think I've grown bored and isolated in this segment. So I'm going to bust on through and uh, I'm sure there's nothing pallid and horrifying waiting for me on the other side of this commercial. No, anything's better than this. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Balapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The Wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. 
or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgrainepress.com slash shop. The groaning of ghosts, the growling of werewolves, the uh, somewhat annoyed complaining of minor vampires tell us that we have entered that uh, most terrifying, most spooky of huts, the horror hut. And uh, in keeping with our all request episode, it's time for request this time from a beloved Patreon backer, VR Weather who uh, says, Ken uncovered the dark truth behind Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, of course, this would be in the Dracula dossier in which you unearthed the excised segments that revealed the connection between uh, Dracula and the British espionage establishment. Uh, VR continues, Now can he unveil the terrible secrets that inspired the not-very-good Lair of the White Worm. This, of course, is uh, one of Bram Stoker's other horror novels, and I had to look up whether I had read it and been bored by it, and I think I was read and bored by a different Bram Stoker novel. Looking at the plot summary for this, it's like mongooses and snake person and mesmerism. Whatever you can say about The Lair of the White Worm, it is not a boring novel. It is (laughs) utterly nonsensical. It is racist as hell. It is crazy pants. By itself, it is the single best piece of evidence that Bram Stoker had syphilis, which I don't actually believe he did. But <laughs> if you enter this into the record as your proof, I would say, well, he was, he was, something was going on with old Bram at, in 1911. My theory is, I think we even know medically that he might have had like a minor stroke. And maybe that's the explanation. This novel is almost completely without cohere, Robin. There's, it's just, a giant pile of nonsense. Yes. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft said, it utterly ruins a magnificent idea by development almost infantile. And he is not wrong here or many other places in that essay. So what is the magnificent idea? <laughs> All right. The magnificent idea is that uh, primordial serpents, which created the legend of dragons in the course of their own immortality, developed intelligence. And that as they developed intelligence, they shrank down trading, as, as Stoker says, physical gifts for mental ones, and took humanoid form. And that one of these humanoid serpents, Arabella March, uh, has been basically living in uh, her castle or her uh, estate, uh, which is called Diana's Grove, but has an older name that Bram Stoker doesn't bother to make up, uh, that he assures us means Lair of the White Worm, uh, because underneath Druid's Grove is one of these giant serpents still. And it's sort of is Arabella, does she change into the worm? Is she just mated to the giant worm? Is it some sort of weird thing between 
he never bothers to explain. And in fairness, an explanation would kind of ruin it. Um, and then around Arabella March, there is other crazy stuff happening that draws in our hero, Adam Sultan, to investigate. And uh, the crazy thing that is happening is a guy named Edgar Caswall, who runs an estate called Castro Regis, which is near Diana's Grove, has basically been experimenting with mesmerism and electricity and snapped. And uh, he believes uh, he has built a, a giant kite in the form of an enormous predatory eagle and has declared that he is God because he can see through the kite and he's attempting to use a mesmerism on a young lady of the, of the area of the village, Lilla Watford. Um, and he's trying to uh, control her mesmerically. Uh, he has Franz Mesmer's chest, which he is using in some unexplained way. And of course he has an evil African servant because uh, 1911, everybody. And the evil servant is, is up to no goodness as, and Arabella March is up to sort of a, sort of a watch and wait patient game because she wants to basically marry Edgar Caswell and take over his estate. Uh, basically, this is just, you know, also I assume on the grounds that since he's insane, she figures she can control him like a puppet, like a snake would hypnotize a, a little bird or something. And I think right. that's the implication. Although again, why bother to say things when you can shout incoherently for five chapters? That's what I ask. <laughs> right. And the, the secret to enjoying The Lair of the White Worm is to watch Ken Russell's 1988 film, The Lair of the White Worm, which has a criminally underrated number on IMDb, I must say. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a really, it's a fine movie in, in many ways. Plus, Hugh Grant, early Hugh Grant. And uh, Amanda Donahoe and Peter Capaldi. Mm. And it it's this great sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, gothic and uh, leaves out uh, almost all of the elements that you've uh, mentioned. But uh, Amanda <laughs> Donahoe plays uh, one of the great vampire slash snake ladies Absolutely. in cinematic history. So do that instead if you're thinking of reading the novel. Right. The, the poster of that movie is on my kitchen door right now. But the question here, now obviously if Dracula was uh, in its published form a cover-up for a uh, espionage conspiracy, then an even better way to cover up the problem with that is is they left a good book behind, yeah. and many people read that book, and it obviously would eventually lead to discovering Edom. So clearly, the second time around, they decided to fill the book with garbage so that no would investigate, uh, presumably, the draconic conspiracy that you're about to tell us about. Right. And what is going on is, if you sort of step one step back from the super heightened emotional wreckage of the novel... What's going on is that there is an electrical mesmeric experimenter who is possibly working with a living mutated dinosaur person, a reptoid, if you will. And this is obviously what's going on is that Edgar Caswall works for possibly the X Club, which we mentioned in Dracula Dossier, the, the shadowy team of uh, British scientists attempting to understand vampirism and other similar phenomena and uh, telluric forces. Uh, he's been drawn to uh, Diana's Grove. He's the new heir in the novel, which is obviously a transparent cover. The, the British government inserts him in, and he begins experimenting with ways to communicate with, control, command, recruit the reptoid, uh, Arabella March, and the giant kaiju reptoid. And you, you haven't lived until you've read Bram Stoker trying to describe a kaiju attack. But it's pretty amazing. <laughs> the giant kaiju snake that lives underneath uh, uh, Diana's Grove. And so 
uh, Caswell is obviously the British government's ex-club man on the scene uh, doing these experiments. And uh, Sir Nathaniel de Salas is probably his handler. He's the sort of Van Helsing guy in the novel, although he doesn't actually do anything very useful. And then uh, also, I believe, and it's been a eon since I've read it, I think that Sir Nathaniel is always coming up with these great theories and then explaining why we can't do anything about them. So, like, Adam Salton is like, we have to save Lilla and Mimi. Mimi is his is, is Lilla's cousin who uh, uh, Adam Salton is into. But then you have a scientist jump in to say, but that would resolve the plot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, he's, and, he says, and he says, well, we have to consider the legal repercussions of hunting down Arabella March and murdering her in her house. And while... But that doesn't seem... Now that he says it, that does <laughs> yeah, seem to make it's, sense. It's not a bad, you know, interjection. <laughs> it is an important... <laughs> moment of reflection. Yeah. But I, I have the sense that Sir Nathaniel is the handler and he's just trying to salvage this experiment, even if Caswall has got to be cut loose. And at the end, we have an explosion that destroys everything, just like we had at the end of the original Dracula, uh, which is the don't come around looking in Derbyshire for this place. There's no uh, way to find it. It's gone. Blew up in a lightning bolt. Classic veil from the kite. <laughs> Remember that enormous kite that I kept mentioning? That was <laughs> that was foreshadowing in a literally insane fashion, <laughs> because Arabella March, for some ungodly reason, stole the wire and ran it back to her house. We don't know why. No one knows why. So obviously there was some sort of electrical experimentation going on. The plan was to run the wire to uh, the kaiju, possibly to awaken it, possibly to control it mesmerically. Who can say what the actual story on the ground was? But Adam Salton is the is, is either the guy from uh, Edom who's coming to investigate or he's uh, a legitimate outsider in the novel. He begins in Australia. So maybe he's from some other agency and is inserted to, to screw up this, this experiment. And uh, that's what happens is that uh, Caswell, of course, uh, goes mad. The, the experiment was a disaster and it's veiled out by Edom or the X club or both. That's, that's the story, the secret story of Lair of the White Worm. So it seems to me that uh, perhaps a trick is being missed here because uh, yes, Edom could certainly be veiling out one of its great historical failures. But the other alternative is that Edom has a kaiju. And a reptoid to uh, run it. And a, a reptoid to run him. So are there other incidents in which, you know, that there are, were kaiju attacks uh, created by a, a branch of the British government that have then been covered up? Can we think of disasters? I mean, you could certainly argue uh, that if Edom has got a reptoid and a kaiju working together that maybe the story of the sinking of the Bismarck Because remember there's a lot of controversy over who exactly fired the torpedo that took out the Bismarck. Was it the spotter plane? Was it one of the ships? We don't know. Or was it a great white worm swimming underneath the Atlantic that, that rose up and destroyed it after Arabella marches is, is brought out to the scene in a, in a spotter plane, any number of, of Britain's uh, successes at sea. You know, I, I can only imagine that a kaiju is the reason that the German high seas fleet after winning Jutland turned right around and went back to Kiel and uh, managed to give up their, their tactical victory. The question, of course, is what happened to the kaiju in the Pacific theater? Because obviously, the, although the kaiju eventually get mad and stomp the heck out of Japan, they certainly don't do it when it counts. And Britain loses Singapore. They lose the, uh, the hood and the Prince of Wales. So there's, so there's something going on. And I suspect bigger, meaner kaiju in the Pacific that are preventing uh, the white worm from, from working freedom in, in that. But I, I think you could certainly uh, explore and explain 
uh, Britain's naval victories as possibly kaiju involved. Uh, I don't think in World War One you have uh, a real possible you know, point where the kaiju was deployed, except maybe at the, at the last hundred days, the, the, um, the black day of the German army, when the British forces, uh, unlike any time during the war, I will point out, managed to steal a march on the, on the Germans and send them reeling back out of their lines. So, uh, maybe the kaiju were there in, in, at Eros in 1918, but for whatever reason, maybe Arabella March, uh, <laughs> didn't want her kaiju to be shot up with artillery and was preventing him from being deployed on the uh, on the on the Western Front, uh, and as always with anything with a reptoid in it, you have to make sure that you're not verging on David Ike is right territory. You have to right. find some way to abuse and humiliate David Ike uh, in the course <laughs> of your property, uh, which of course is just a fun thing to do on its own, independent of anything else. Just just uh, really, it's 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 a fun hobby, and a man who wears a purple tracksuit is really asking for it, even before he becomes <laughs> a wild anti semite. And of course, Arabella March. Fits some of the same sort of reptoid conspiracy standards. She's an aristocrat. She's a femme fatale. Uh, she's probably cannibalistic. We don't know. So there's some of that. But again, as against that, if there's only one reptoid or maybe a, a, a few reptoids at, at places where there are uh, fens that, ex- the, that date back to the Cretaceous, it, it's not the same thing as uh, them being able to change shape and infiltrate the British royal family or whatever. But again, you can certainly argue that something they might have thought of was since Arabella March was into Edgar Caswell, possibly, maybe they would have thought to marry her off to some easily, easily controlled scion of the British family. And then maybe she gets up to activities and she has to be killed in a tunnel in Paris. I don't know. Just running through some mail here. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> speaking of tunnels, it's time for us to uh, tunnel below uh, this exciting commercial and see uh, what waits for us on the other side. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Stop this podcast from being crushed by ennui and also underfunding by throwing in with such stalwart Patreon backers as Thomas Vallejo, John Rogers, Ross Ireland, Todd W. Olson, and Yaj from Edinburgh. The whir of the projector, the sight of the smoke curling up in the beam, the whatever that is underneath our underneath our feet as we make our way to the center seats. Of the cinema hut, 
uh, where Louis Sylvester, beloved Patreon backer Louis Sylvester, asks, I've been listening to old episodes, and way back in episode nine, Ken misspeaks and quickly corrects himself by saying, John Carpenter's Aliens. I would love to hear more about John Carpenter's Aliens. What does this movie look like? What RPG system would be perfect for playing this story? Robin, besides very possibly endangering Big Trouble in Little China, since they came out the same year, what's John Carpenter's Aliens up to? Well, the the, the train of development would be different, and I'm sure there's uh, some other lesser Carpenter film that uh, doesn't get made. Uh, Christine. Let's replace Christine. Yeah, Ghost of Mars <laughs> is a little late, but th- that'd be even better one to replace. So I would think that uh, Carpenter, given the uh, idea of uh, there is a menacing creature in a confined space. There's an installation uh, that it is attacking. I think that the planet that the installation is on, I think that he might make it a snowy planet, an icy planet. And rather than shifting uh, from horror movie to war movie, the way uh, that uh, James Cameron does in our timeline, that what he would do is uh, shift from physical gothic horror, uh, the, the threat of being preyed upon, he would just sort of shift subgenres a little and make it into a paranoia horror. And so the next evolution of the alien would be one that could take a variety of forms and uh, would therefore, uh, because Carpenter is, um, he has action sequences and stuff in his films, but he's certainly not the uh, master of kinetics that Cameron is. And so his uh, now shape-shifting alien would be capable of turning into and mimicking other people in uh, this icy, isolated uh, installation. And then it would uh, turn into sort of an exciting exercise in paranoia in which the the threat could be uh, anyone uh, around you could be part of this uh, creature. And uh, the uh, alien, once it comes into contact with human DNA, begins to mutate wildly and can sort of switch into any form and can absorb dogs. And uh, so so I think that that would be the... Uh, uh, and I'm not sure it would be called aliens. It might be called the, the alien inside or something like that. But I think that would be... I, I can almost imagine in vivid detail. It might even have Kurt Russell in it, uh, what this film would be. I'm going to premise reject your answer, Robin. <laughs> Because we already know about the thing. The thing is a thing. And although we can imagine that the same impulses that led him to make the thing out of uh, a B minus Howard Hawks project would lead him to work on the same sort of tenor. I think that the fog, the thing, and uh, to a lesser extent, assault on precinct 13 are going to lead him in a different direction. I think that rather than alien, it will be aliens because we're going to keep the title. We're not going to premise reject the question, but the aliens will be able to sort of, they'll, they'll be like pod creatures or a brood of ihort, right? There's a, a big you mass of a thing. they'll be able to take on the forms of the people in the installation? No, they'll, 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 they'll be busted out of the basic thing. And when you shoot it, it makes a bunch of smaller aliens and then they run around. So you're basically doing a... A, a sort of a proto zombie style movie where you, you hit the alien and, and parts of it bust off and then it grows into more aliens. It becomes a, a spawn type movie and uh, not spawn the, the superhero spawn, just the concept. And uh, I think that you have a sort of kinetic paranoid, but in the sense of it, maybe it's around this corner type feeling. And uh, you have, a tight focus on 
what uh, the team of astronauts or, or uh, Marines or whoever they are. And I think in this, in this period, they're not even astronauts or Marines. It's the, the alien has arrived on some other planet. And these are just sort of normal settlers going through their normal settler day. And there's uh, maybe a settler sheriff played by Kurt Russell. You can't rule that out, but it's not a shapeshifty alien movie. It's a, they're going to swarm in and overwhelm you and destroy uh, this outpost of humanity type movie. And again, I think that's where your the fog assault on precinct 13 Prince of darkness vibe is going to come from. And someone in the community that you're certainly going to have some psychological uh, or interior problem. Someone in the community will turn out to be attracting them or worshiping them or using super science to, um, uh, to try and, and get them. And they're going to turn out to be working for the corporation. They'll be the sort of Paul Reiser figure. Maybe they'll even be Paul Reiser. I don't know. And they'll be the one who's sort of playing the, the role of the scientists in the Hawks thing saying, we should study this. It's too important. We can't let our human prejudices against being overrun by, by splinter creatures, uh, get in the way. And meanwhile, could you put your blood in this sample case? No reason. And that sort of activity. So you have the, you know, holding the external fort while the inside is being undermined. And I think that feeds into Carpenter's creative uh, themes. And also it leaves you with the answer aliens. And I don't think anyone minds, uh, swapping out Kurt Russell for Michael Bean and, uh, uh, Sigourney Weaver, perhaps is in the movie, but she's an Android or replicant built out of Ripley because the corporation was like, well, she turned out to be super helpful on that Nostromo situation. We should build one. And then getting Ripley to not be a corporate Android and turn into the hero that can save us is sort of the arc that uh, Kurt Russell has to do. He's like, I can't fight these splinter monsters on my own. I need this Android to help me out. He overcomes his anti-Android prejudice and his uh, anti-woman prejudices. And sure enough, with Ripley in full Android mode, they are able to uh, quash Paul Reiser's treason and defeat the aliens at great cost to the civilized frontier that they're on. Now, uh, Carpenter also uh, among his themes is the uh, the dissolution of society. Um, and so it could be that John Carpenter's Aliens is the uh, premise that the franchise has flirted with again and again and never quite gotten to, which is Wayland yutani uh, gets the alien, takes it to Earth, and then the aliens bust out. Um, and right. so that could be anything as simple as the aliens run amok in a city, um, or uh, even the sort of post post apocalyptic version where the uh, aliens are everywhere and there's a few survivors left holed up in a in a bunker somewhere, and uh, they're facing that final assault. And that would be, I guess, closer to a, a quiet place with uh, with aliens. Right. And that could uh, give you sort of your your zombie post-monster apocalypse themes. And uh, certainly, I think you would get POV shots with an electronic score uh, from the point of view of the alien. I think we'd definitely get that, yeah. It might even, you know, start to be about the, you know, from the alien's point of view. It's that... Uh, uh, I think we're overdue for one in which the uh, the alien you see everything from the aliens and they're being hunted and it's like well we're this is just our reproductive system guys I don't know why you're trying to keep being murderous uh, and uh, yeah sure we have acid blood but, but we didn't choose to have acid blood you could do that I'm not sure that's that's a John Carpenter concept no. though he's not he's he's very seldom sympathy to the to the monster is not his gig and thank goodness by the way yeah so I, I don't know who would do. Uh, 
Sympathy for the alien. I don't know. Maybe uh, uh, Park Chan Wook might do that. Sympathy for the alien. He's even got other titles, yeah, right? Right. I mean, uh, or if we're doing the alternate 80s, uh, maybe that's what Joel Schumacher does instead of Batman. <laughs> right? Uh, poor, poor, uh, yes, let's pour one out for uh, Joel Schumacher. And, and, and apropos of absolutely nothing, I feel like while I am not a fan of those Batmans or in my rational moments of Flatliners or most of his work, the guy knew how to shoot a shot. Flatliners looked like nothing on earth, and it looked like the best imaginable version of spooky Chicago, and I fell so hard for that movie in the time that I was watching it. And that's that's what you got with all the Schumacher films, is even if they made no damn sense at all, they were at least gorgeous. They were beautiful to look at. He remembered film as a visual medium, and that's what I that's what I appreciated about good old Joel. Plus, who doesn't he, love He was uh, stronger away from the nerd genres. Yeah. I don't he didn't take uh, the genre imagery uh, seriously at all in it. And that right. uh, kind of undercuts the, the properties that you uh, yeah. see being explored, but like a phone booth and Tigerland, that's, that's where his, his strengths uh, lay. It would certainly be interesting to see an alien movie with, with a, a, a gay aesthetic. That's something we haven't quite uh, seen yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, I think that's where you could get your sympathy for the monster. Always an outsider. He's excluded because he reproduces differently. That's, that that's we 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 reach out we see the uh, the humanity within the alien I, I think that Joel Schumacher's Alien Three where the aliens are on Earth and we see it through their eyes and they're sort of like what is this insane stupid planet and why is it run by these giant unfeeling mega corporations we should destroy them type sensibility that'd be that'd be fun let's 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 to to our John Carpenter's aliens let's add Joel Schumacher's Alien Three I say yes well I guess we better get out of here before we get to Alien Four because uh, <laughs> the, the possibilities are just uh, multiplying too much like aliens themselves like aliens themselves oh and you'd use the alien rpg from free league that's what you'd use finish right. the question and joel schumacher wouldn't kill off the kid in the beginning of movie he would three, not that's for sure that's not that's not the schumacher promise right uh well uh let's uh let's get addled then to our final segment What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bupkis. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dads. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. It's time once more to uh, wend our way up the creepy cobweb stairs where we will wave at the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and then head on in to the uh, Edwardian inner parlor where waits the consulting occultist. And this time around we see some military maps 
out on the uh, consulting occultist's uh, table because in response to a question from the estimable Patreon backer John W.S. Marvin, uh, he is going to tell us what occult forces were brought to bear by both sides in the Battle of Kursk in 1943. So I guess uh, first we're going to have to slip into the command hut to have the consulting occultist tell us what the uh, normative version of the Battle of Kursk was all about, and then we'll get him to then supply the esoteric side. Okay, uh, the Battle of Kursk begins when Hitler is looking at a map of the uh, Russian front, and he notices that there is a salient, a bulge of Russian-held territory in the middle of the German lines. So if you imagine it, it runs along and then there's a big bulge of, of uh, Russian territory and then it goes back along to the Germans. And he thinks, being Hitler, well, we've been cutting off enemy units all the time with our Blitzkriegs. We should cut off these Russians and, uh, you know, just drive tanks around and, and link up and, and turn that salient into a cauldron, a kettle and, and take out the Russians. And uh, because he's Hitler, everyone starts doing that. But Monstein... Uh, who is probably at this point the best German general on the East, says, well, this could work, but we'd have to launch the attack immediately at the beginning of spring if we're ever going to have any hope of success because we need, obviously, strategic surprise uh, because guess what? We don't have mobile reserves anymore. So uh, we would be attacking at an obvious place against probably prepared troops. We would need to do it as soon as possible. So with Manstein's very good advice, uh, Hitler does the only uh, rational thing, which is delay the attack until July. So the Soviets having gotten warned by uh, a uh, spy network called Lucy, and also from, I think just not being stupid, uh, notice that the Germans are building up their forces on the two shoulders, as it were, of the salient, start digging tank defenses right where they know the Germans are going to come. And they build about 300, uh, kilometers of them, almost 200 miles of defense in depth, which means the attack is doomed before it begins. And it does begin. Uh, the Germans attack at one to two odds, which I don't think I have to tell you is a terrible idea. <laughs> they, uh, I, I'm get, not a military historian, but I know the difference between one and two. Yeah. And also, if you just think back to all those little charts in the Avalon Hills, one to two is where things don't Things do not look good. So they attack at one to two odds. They get a little bit of a way because they have the new Tiger tanks and the new Panzer IVs that can, in fact, outshoot the uh, T-34. They just can't outdrive or outmaintain the T-34. The Soviets counterattack and basically open out the salient to clear out the, the whole front. They destroy the German offensive reserve. The Germans are fighting on the defense for the rest of the war because they've used everything they could possibly use in this uh, battle. It does become the largest tank battle in history. Uh, certainly the battle of Prokhorovka, which is the Southern salient is just enormous, like tens of thousands of tanks on each side. It, it's a giant thing. And in fairness to the Germans, which is not a word you're going to hear an awful lot. They <laughs> did kill six to nine times as many men and tanks and planes as they lost in the offensive. The trouble is the Russians can replace that and the Germans cannot. So uh, that's the, that's the battle of Kursk. That's what happened. It basically is the, oh, you thought Stalingrad was a fluke. It was not a fluke. You are uh, strategically on the defensive and you will stay that way. And that was basically where Stalingrad means the, the, the Germans can't push any farther deep into Russia. Kursk means they probably can't keep what they already have. If I didn't know better, I would think that uh, you're saying that, uh, 
megalomaniacal uh, totalitarians keep trying the same uh, stupid plan uh, again and again because they're not interested in reality. Yeah. Although in the, in fairness, the other megalomaniacal- well, twice. <laughs> yes. In fairness, the other megalomaniacal stupid tyrant, Stalin, listened to his spies this time <laughs> and left the planning of this uh, operation mostly to Zhukov. He didn't go in and try and micromanage it. He was like, well- you know, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, it's not going to happen. I'm just going to put Zhukov in charge. And Zhukov knows that if he somehow loses a battle at one to two odds, he will he will not stay Zhukov for very long. And uh, Zhukov did not, in fact, lose the battle because right. he had uh, four months to build tank defenses, which you don't have to be Zhukov to see that. <laughs> yeah. Well, when comparing these two mass-killing monsters, uh, one of them wound up shooting himself in a bunker and the other didn't. And the other died in bed. Yeah. So, uh, the esoteric part. The esoteric part. I, I think the listeners of this show are now fairly familiar with the vast panoply of uh, occult nonsense that the Nazis were up to. The Viking SS Panzer Group was at Kursk, although as a mobile reserve, which implies that it's evil Indiana Jones, Herbert Yonkun might have been out working some sort of artifact magic or uh, messing around on an Airbus style. The, the attempt to harness uh, various uh, demonic uh, Spear of Destiny type powers was no doubt clicking along as always. There were, uh, as I mentioned, SS divisions in the in the battle. So I think we can sort of take uh, the Nazis as red. I will come back to them because there's a specific thing about Kursk that might be relevant in this case. But uh, the Russians are the hard one because, of course, uh, the Russians executed their last great magician when they purged Glaboki, who was a vampire, tantrist, theosophist, mystic, and um, uh, I believe a uh, Kabbalist because he was very into codes and crypt cryptography. Um, anyway, they executed him in 1938. So in the same way that the Soviets left themselves wide open on the uh, tank commanding front by executing Tukhachevsky, they've executed their magician. Fortunately, they have the Leningrad Institute for Brain Research under Leonid Vasilyev, who is attempting to produce and harness telepathy. And uh, he's been doing this since 1932. The same time, uh, Lazarev and Turligin of the Biophysical Laboratory of the Academy of Science in Moscow are also researching telepathy. So it is possible that one of the ways that the uh, GRU was able to tease out the Nazi plans was telepathically. Uh, can't rule that out. Now, at the Battle of Kursk, we do have reports, and I want to emphasize that when I say we do have reports, you can find them on the internet, not the same thing, <laughs> of a flying disc or orb over Prokhorovka on 26th August 1943. This would be during the counterattack that stopped panzers, so it used some sort of EMP ray, and then it burned them. I guess you couldn't use an EMP against something without an electronic transmission, but they it, it used a paralyzing ray, and then it burned them. And at the time, according to according to the moderately more sensible theories about this, the uh, Russians who saw the orb or disc or sickle-shaped thing that changed color thought it might be an American superweapon that had been deployed on their side at Kursk. Since that time, that report has been taken by the East Front enthusiasts, including your own uh, fellow Canadian Ernst Zundel, and turned into a report of a Nazi UFO that attacked Soviet tanks at Kursk. But that, I'm here to tell you, is a fabrication of the original fabrication. So, 
don't believe the hype. That was a uh, Soviet or Soviet-friendly disc orb or sickle shape at uh, Prokhorovka. So that is the the thing that we know happened. And by no, you know what I mean by no. Uh, that's the thing that we have that is a paranormal thing at the Battle of Kursk. Right. And I would just like to say that uh, Ernst Stundel was temporarily... Uh, Canadian, but certainly I don't want the uh, pronoun my in, in front of the words. Right. I think we got rid of oh, him. Yeah, oh, yeah. Alexander Graham Bell stops in Nova Scotia for a week and a half. He's Canadian. Yeah, we, we, we don't want to take credit for the uh, the, the evil uh, temporarily uh, hanging around uh, people. Right. So I understand uh, that if you go back further into the history of Kursk, there's all manner of esoteric or eleptonic uh, information that may uh, feed into this, uh, starting with a uh, prince who uh, might have been a lycanthrope of some kind. Yes, uh, this is Vesevalod. Uh, he's the prince of Kursk, and he is in the Lay of Igor's Raid, which is a famous Russian epic about uh, Prince Igor, who invades the Polovtsians, he attacks them, and uh, dies horribly. <laughs> he's he's killed with all of his men. Um and that's uh, that, that's the Russian national epic. So if you were ever wondering do countries match their national epics? Yes, they do. So the uh Prince Vesevalod is uh, his brother and he is described as a berserk, uh a great fighter. Uh basically this is the Russian chronicler sort of riffing off Norse uh ways of painting heroes as um uh, uh you know Odin touched berserks uh great warriors so the this guy's uh, uh, he's still rus so he's still sort of half viking in his heart using this to 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 color vesevalod and he repeatedly describes him as an aurochs a, a giant uh, now extinct wild cow wild ox of the forest that had enormous horns and would uh smash stuff up and so possibly vesevalod although his men are described as wolves uh was himself a were aurochs which is amazing just by itself. Right. I feel so, like so there could have been were cows were at cows the Battle of Kursk at the Battle of Kursk. Him. Exactly. And they would have been immune to even the 88 millimeter cannon of the Tiger tank, or they would have been able to run up from the side and bang into it and knock it over with their were cow powers. Also, Kursk was a center of witchcraft in uh, Russian times. There were witchcraft trials at Kursk in 1625, 1626, and 1649. Uh, an archimandrite who ran a monastery in Kursk was accused of witchcraft in 1740. And uh, even in in modern days, some probably not altogether operating on the same structures as the rest of us guys attacked a woman in Terakovo, which is near Kursk, claiming that she was a witch and that she'd put a curse on them. And she, for whatever reason, did not press charges. So good for her. This was in 1997. Uh, maybe she just, you know, has the natural allergy to talking to the authorities that I assume everybody does in Russia. Or perhaps you don't engage with the authorities in Russia unless you know you have the uh, uh, behind-the-scenes clout. Right, the upper hand. And witchcraft yeah. is is not that thing. But it, it does argue that there is a constant possibility of witch tradition in uh, Kursk. And to sort of reinforce that theory, in Kursk, at least for a while, uh, when they would make dolls, they would leave the faces of the dolls blank. So that you couldn't get uh, evil spirits that were floating around in the area wouldn't see the doll and possess it. 
If so, only everywhere were more vigilant against devil dolls. I know. Well, that's the thing, right? Is when you leave it to the individual doll creator, and you're just playing the odds that the doll creator is not going to be up to some sort of poppet magic chicanery. Right. So uh, therefore there, there would be a, a, a platoon of possessed dolls. Right. That yes. As, when the Germans are advancing, you paint all the faces on them. And then, you know, what better to run up the treads of a tank and pull open the, the lid and, and drop a grenade than a devil doll because they're entirely expendable, right? right. Even the spirit inside it is not going to be destroyed, just the doll itself. Or even just carry a carry a cluster bomb underneath the tank and yeah. or a, a shape charge and just blow it up, right? You don't even have to open things if you're a doll because you just are a... Um, you're just well, blowing the tread off. Some devil dolls have a flair for the dramatic. Yeah, no, look, I, I, it, I think a lot of it just depends on which evil spirit possesses which yeah. doll, and they get sorted out by the witches uh, of Kursk, and they're like, okay, devil dolls of the eighth ring go here, devil dolls of the seventh and above over here, and and that's you know just and the doll gets blown up, and then they just hike on back and possess the next doll. Exactly, the spirit gets gets floated away, and the and the Nazis, you know, they've they've just got the one archaeologist. They don't necessarily have a whole team of devil doll battlers on the front, uh, not least because I suspect most of the people who have the skills to battle devil dolls are Roma, right? That that seems like the kind of people that would be out there on the front lines of war against the devil dolls, and the Nazis, of course, have screwed that just like they screwed their atomic research. So. Bad job, Nazis. Don't be Nazis. But the thing that the Nazis might have tried and uh, is that there is a miraculous icon. It's called the Root Icon, and it is not called that because of the witch practice of root magic that also happens in Kursk. It is because it was found near the root of a tree in 1295, and the people of Rilsk thought this will be a great icon for our city, and they would take it to Rilsk, and then it would miraculously go back to the tree. And they would do that over and over and over. And eventually someone says, just build a city there, for goodness sake. The icon <laughs> wants it. And they built Kursk. And so it was the magic special icon of Kursk. And it was the sort of heart and soul of the city. It's an icon of uh, of Mary, uh, mother of, of Jesus. And she's dark, dark, almost black. So it's a black Madonna, if you're into that. And then, of course, the white forces, when they evacuated Kursk ahead of the, the Soviets, they took the icon with them. And it was in Belgrade. Uh, during World War II, which means it was under Nazi occupation. So possibly the Ananerba might have been trying to use the connection between the icon and the city of Kursk to do some sort of magic um, uh, ritual. Um, and the, the Romans used to do this as well. They used to make a deal with the gods of other cities um, and say, hey, rather than be a god of this stupid podunk town, why don't you be a god of Rome? which is big and fancy and will hook you up with your own temple and it'll be great. And the gods of those cities would uh, come out and say, that sounds like a great deal. And so that's why, for example, the Romans uh, had a little temple of uh, Kybele's when they were conquering cities in Asia. They said, look, Kybele, why defend these cities when you've got a sweet temple in Rome you can defend? And that was the same sort of practice that they did. Maybe the Nazis were attempting this Roman rite by trying to cut a deal with the Black Madonna uh, of the root icon of Kursk. And of course the black Madonna is I think more than capable of putting people off and saying, ah, you know, I'm not really feeling it. Maybe ask me in July, see what I see where I am in July. And so, Oh yeah, yeah. The black Madonna says it's cool in July. No, no. And, and she says, no, no. I said, ask me in July. I didn't say I'd say yes in July. Ask me in August. And so I think the, the, the root icon was probably playing a rope a dope uh, delay game. And uh, the, the Nazis fell for it. That's that's my theory, is that the Ananerba, rather than be out there fighting the the, the, the devil dolls and um, uh, the, the were cows, 
was uh, desperately trying to invite uh, the icon to serve uh, the Germans instead of the Russians, and the icon wasn't having it. Right. Um, so is there an Avalon Hill game of the, the Battle of Kursk, or is it just too one-sided a conflict to try and ever bother gaming out? I am a million percent sure that there is a Kursk war game. Most of the war games that I play on the Eastern Front are the entire strategic level campaign. But uh, I know that there were Kursk scenarios in Panzer Blitz uh, because we played them and they were good because they were where you actually had a lot of tanks. A game For a game called Panzer Blitz, there was a lot of infantry actions in, in those game scenarios. So uh, all you need to do then is to find those scenarios and add the uh, the counters for were cows uh, and devil dolls. I'm not sure if the Black Madonna is a a chit so much as sort of the, the supply line. I, I, I think that she's a, she's like the air superiority uh, die, right? If you have the black Madonna, you get to add plus two type situation. And obviously uh, if your uh, player characters uh, find themselves in the middle of this, uh, you can take out the real world history and uh, turn the idea of a uh, massive tank attack against a putatively vulnerable target that turns out to have uh, much more resources because they're in the home base and there's weird forces on both sides. Well, uh, then you have the wars then you have a, a scenario for the, uh, the Yellow King. So you could be uh, investigating what has caused the outbreak of uh, were-cow-ism or uh, the, uh, this is your fine example to get an, an another devil doll scenario uh, in there. There's a, a this a, Justin, that devil dolls are uh, a modern day thing, but you can have a precursor in, in that. And uh, uh, there's uh, all manner of ways that you can uh, game uh, this out as a as a player character situation in which you're uh, trying to survive the battle and find the solution to one of these uh, three or four different uh, crazy eleptonic or supernatural mysteries. Right. Um, I will say that there is at least two SBI games on Kursk. There's Kursk Operation Zinadel and Drive on Kursk. And then Eric Goldberg apparently wrote a monster game on Kursk or did a monster game on Kursk. So if you are really desperate to uh, tabletop uh, Kursk, you you are being served. But I think you're right. I think that the, the key is to play it on the platoon level like you do in, in Panzer Blitz or in Conflict of Heroes or any of the other sort of more handleable games. And then, yeah, just toss in your warehouse. That's fun. Yeah, because you, you don't want to zoom out so far that you miss the, the devil dolls. Right. Or, or the or the orb disc sickle thing, which I, I guess if you're playing a historical game of Kursk, you can't introduce until August, but you know, whatever. <laughs> well, you know, some people are sticklers for reality. Right. And on that note, it's time for us to uh, face the reality that this episode has uh, come to a close, but we'll be back uh, with another one a mere seven days from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Protect this podcast from pallid monster worms by joining such heroic backers as... Darren Hennessy. Matt Farr. Miko Irexenen. Trung Boy. And... Wayne Rossi. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest foray into gratuitously cat-themed casual wear. Excuse me while I nap this out. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>